Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush-hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. All right, I am back here today with another guest speaker here with me, and I am very excited to dive into this topic. I've been wanting to do an episode covering EMDR for quite a while now because I myself have gone through EMDR therapy for healing my trauma with my abuse, and I've had multiple guests mention EMDR, but I don't think a lot of people know necessarily what that is or how it works and what it entails. And so when Keeney followed me on Instagram and we connected, I felt like it was meant to be because I was like, oh my gosh, this is someone that specializes in this and can come and talk about it better than I can myself. So I'm super excited. So hi, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm excited. So do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Like, who are you and what is your story? My name is Keeney Chang. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and born and raised in the Bay Area, practice also here in the Bay Area. So I'm Chinese American, first generation born here. My parents are from Hong Kong. And so they're born there and they immigrated here probably in the 70s or so. And so I definitely feel that I'm a blend of both cultures and and Bay Area culture and various aspects are part of who I am. In regards to my work, nowadays, I have a private practice in Oakland where I specialize in intergenerational trauma. I do a lot of trauma work as well as a lot of mixed couples. I work with a lot of mixed couples. I also teach. So I also teach graduate and undergraduate school, various universities in the Bay Area, and I help run, run one of the counseling counseling departments for our budding future therapists. So keeps me pretty busy as yeah. I, as you can imagine, wearing <laughs> multiple hats. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great. So I want to ask why you became an EMDR therapist and if you've ever gone through EMDR therapy yourself. Yeah, I definitely have. So I was introduced to EMDR therapy when I was in my graduate program. And so when you're in your counseling psychology graduate program, it is either highly recommended or actually mandatory to complete your own number of hours in psychotherapy. You know, as you can imagine, it's so important to know what it feels like to be in the chair, the other side of the chair, before you go into the work. And so I also felt like for me, it was a level of integrity. There's family stuff arising. If there's something that I'm being triggered or affected by, it's important for me to do my own work so that I can show up in a very present and real way for clients. You know, that was a stance for me. It was the first time I actually went to therapy. One of the things that were coming up had to do with my relational attachments. There was a theme that was showing up around abandonment. Mm. And it's a very common story, actually. I think a lot of folks struggle with that. And, you know, maybe it's a podcast for another day, but we can talk Mm -hmm. about what kind of trauma can cause that. For me, it was actually linked to a very specific event in my childhood. In San Francisco in 1989, there was a very severe 
severe earthquake. 7.3, 7.5, something like that. I can't remember exactly. That day, and I was about seven or eight years old, pretty young. And you can imagine complete chaos. All the lights went down. The freeway had actually broken in half or the bridge, the top level had fallen down. Wow. And so all that was happening were ambulances and things like that. And so I, at the time, I was going to school during the day and then I had Chinese school in the evening. So usually the routine was that my mother would come and pick me up after school. That day, unfortunately, there was a switch in the schedule with my parents. And so what happened was I ended up sitting there waiting for my parents to come get me. The earthquake happened mm. at about 5.30. I was there till maybe 9 p.m. sitting on the steps by myself. And you would yeah. imagine that a teacher who should have stayed, yeah. that's the way should happen. But, you know, in crisis and chaos, they're trying to tend to their own family. And so it was in that moment, a very, very difficult experience for me. And there were things that were happening in my adult life, like not trusting people that I was in close relationships with, particularly romantic relationships at that point in my life and feel having this constant sense that they were either going to leave me or that they weren't going to show up, but mostly that they were going to leave me. And when people were late, it was very triggering for me, you know, unreasonably, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I just couldn't understand this. And so as I was talking through the relationship component, the EMDR therapist was able to pinpoint and identify this moment in time and through their own intuitive sense could sense that this was very much tied to maybe now X amount of years into my adulthood that I have been dealing with abandonment associated with this one moment in time. Yeah. When I was able to receive EMDR and I think it maybe was three sessions. This was a very isolated event. So for targeting memories, it's actually quite simple and quite straightforward, but you can imagine the profound impact if this particular memory was able to be released from my neurobiological pathway. And so I remember as we were doing the EMDR, this moment of this visual or this thought that came into my mind was that this dry erase board Mm. and the word abandonment was written across it in dry erase marker. And as the bilateral was happening, I remember it erasing in, in real time. Wow. And in that moment, you think dry erase board, eraser, erasing, like not really a big deal, but it's the way that my brain was able to let go of that experience of that visceral connection to what had happened in that moment to how I experienced the world. And then I was able to have relationships, you know, like it was was almost instantaneous that I didn't experience triggers when people were late. It was so profound because it interwove right in there. Like it was normal. Like Mm -hmm. I thought, "Hmm, yeah, people are late five minutes. That's okay. I think in that moment, I was like, I'm definitely becoming an EMDR therapist. When I'm out of graduate school and when I become licensed, and this will become part of my modality. It's been a gift for me to be able to provide clients, you know, relief from their suffering. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. I love hearing the background. I mean, let's unpack this. What is EMDR therapy? How does it work? So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And that's a mouthful, so (laughs) don't worry about remembering that. But it is a form of trauma treatment modality that is able to tap into the parts of our brain where the trauma, the experience is being quote unquote held. So what I mean by that is, for example, trauma can be experienced as nightmares or feeling stressed or tense when you come close to someone who was a perpetrator or 
location or event where an event, a negative event happened, right? So, and sometimes it feels like you're living it or experiencing it just like it happened yesterday. And what I want to say about trauma is that not all trauma becomes like that, right? Mm -hmm. Your brain and your body, it has a natural ability to heal itself. Very much like a wound if you get a cut. And sometimes those wounds can get infected. So I'll use a bit of a physical analogy. I think this helps folks is that it's kind of like if you get a cut or a a wound and some wounds naturally heal, they just find a way to do that and, and they don't become infected and they don't end up having any issues. But some wounds do and they can create pain and scarring and, you know, all of these things, complications that can happen. And I think with trauma that can happen sometimes and we can't always pinpoint or know which trauma that happens to. Mm-hmm. So, and the ones that do, they're quite painful and they don't seem to heal right or they seem to have residual pieces, right? And so that can be the trauma that gets trapped in a neurobiological pathway. What EMDR does is it's able to target those particular memories and through the bilateral, I'll explain a little bit about what bilateral is, through the bilateral movement. And we can do that through visual, auditory, you could do it through somatic. Some people do tapping or tactile. So it's usually tactile, auditory, or visual. And it's a left to right side of the brain. When you're able to provide that bilateral and target that particular memory or pathway, you're actually triggering the mind and body to naturally address it and actually move into healing it. So you're able to almost stimulate that part of the pathway so that it's able to release it from that space or that moment or that experience. As you know, with trauma, it's oftentimes you don't have a memory. Mm-hmm. Memories get repressed or they, they're very hard to remember. And so we are able through EMDR to actually tap into all parts of the body. We do a check-in with the body, the physical body or somatic, the cognition. So the thought process or the thought, this ruminating thought or this like view about yourself that has kind of perpetuated due to the trauma, as well as the trauma memory itself. And so the great thing about EMDR is it doesn't matter how that trauma is manifesting for you. Mm-hmm. It could simply be like a tinge on your pinky toe mm-hmm. and we can target that, right? <laughs> because the body and the mind knows exactly what memory that's about. Even if you can't access it through memory, even if you can't cognitively recall the details, they don't have to. Mm-hmm. But they in themselves know, I don't know why I'm, every time I think about this moment in my life, my toe hurts or tingles. That's enough. And, and for others, it's overflooding. It feels like too much. And so one of the first things with the EMDR therapy process is resourcing. We do resourcing with the client, internal resourcing, where we are able to help the client access an internal place that's a peaceful or calm place. In addition, I create a resource team with the client. So this is one of my mentors who had taught this piece. It comes from kind of transpersonal work as well, where they integrate a resource team, a nurturing figures, protective figures, and wise figures. Hmm. And they are all with the client as well as the calm place. And this has shown to be so helpful because it really supports the client in all aspects of self. Because oftentimes there's a nurturing, protective, or kind of not knowing what to do aspect that's part of their fear. And so you bring in these folks in the resource to support in managing that and them not feeling alone in the process. And then we go through different stages. There's standard protocol, which has to do with, there's a whole series of protocols that 
you go through with the process. The bilateral reprocessing component is actually a left to right. And so like I mentioned about stimulating the right and left side of the brain while they hold the experience in their mind. Could be, again, the pain sensation, the memory itself, whatever that might be. And you let the brain actually just move with it. Mm -hmm. Meaning the client, they may have different sensations, continue moving with that. They may have a new memory arise. They may have something come forward. And whatever that is, is exactly the way it's meant to be. So there's no wrong way. They just go with it. An analogy I often tell clients is imagine you're sitting on a train and you're watching the scenery go by. That really helps them kind of just be with what's arising. And even if it's scary or it's painful, that they can kind of watch it go by in the present moment. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for explaining that. And it makes sense. What does an actual session look like? Because it's not the same as like talk therapy, right? Right. When I think about therapy, I think about it very much as an art and a science. You know, as therapists, we come with so much knowledge about the brain, human behavior, emotional response, you know, all of the scientific social science component. And then it's that dance that you have with the client in any given moment. And to me, that is the intuitive, that is the art, that is the dance. And so I think one of the very essential pieces of EMDR and, you know, and I sometimes feel like with my colleagues, I've been trained by a number of EMDR therapists and some folks are pioneers in it as well in different sectors of it. And they have very different styles. So just like finding the right therapist, it is so important to find the right EMDR therapist. I think the best EMDR therapists are ones that not just use the protocol, but they bring themselves into the work. So they're also quite intuitive because EMDR in its protocol can feel a bit cold because a client will sit with across from you. We're targeting a memory. And nowadays on Zoom, I use a platform where it's really great because it, I'm able to have the video session and then the clients have headphones on and I can control Mm. the speed of the bilateral that they're listening to. I can add bilateral visual as well if I wanted to. So it's not always an easy transition for something like that, but it's been really helpful. I can control the speed. For example, for resourcing, the speed is slower. For reprocessing, it's a little bit faster. So there's things like that. And so also the intuitive component is how long do you do the bilateral for? When do you pause so that the client can kind of share about their experience in the moment and what's going on? The magic kind of happens where it isn't just about waving your hand or listening to beeps on two sides of your ears, right? It's about noticing the moments where the trauma releases mm-hmm. and when you and the direction that you want to go from there. That's kind of the art form that happens with the client. There's like the very basic component of, okay, what do you notice in your body? What's the thought that arises? Is there a particular memory that you notice? And then so having them tap into, and then what's the emotion, right? So those four components and then hone in on that. You start the bilateral and from there, you kind of see what moves, what shifts, what moves. And you'll know that it's clear when they go back to the target memory and the experience of the memory is neutral. I know in my own sessions, how she had kind of formatted it is asking me on a scale of one to 10, like how Mm -hmm. triggering it felt. And she did tapping like on my hands and different frequencies, different Mm -hmm. numerals between pauses and Mm -hmm. asking me what was the last thing you felt or the last thought you had. And then she would just continue it. And it was just really cool experiencing Mm -hmm. it. You know, the empirical research is shown, has been shown through bilateral eye movement, right? right? But in my experience, clients do really well with tapping. 
They yeah. do really well with auditory because with auditory and tapping, clients can close their eyes. Yeah, my eyes were closed. And there's something different, really different about that. I like the tapping. I like the auditory. And sometimes I'll do both. And with clients, also I notice the attachment component. There's something about attunement that happens when you're able to tap the top of your hands. That is the unspoken component that can happen in the therapeutic relationship between therapist and client that I have seen quite profound in that that piece there. Yeah. It's just really cool how it works. Mm-hmm. Kind of just blows my mind. <laughs> so who would you recommend seeing an EMDR therapist? What are your clients coming in with? Yeah, my clients come in with, I mean, the gamut of trauma-related issues is kind of, I feel like can be anything really. I think one of the things to pay attention to is, for example, when you're choosing an EMDR therapist, there's things that are quote-unquote contraindicated, one of which is dissociation you know, Mm -hmm. high levels of dissociation. However, in my experience, you know, at this point I've been doing EMDR for over eight years now and it's something you can work with. There are very tactics, various strategies, various things to help reorient the client to be able to stay present. I think as you become well-versed in the world of EMDR and doing this particular modality, you're able to maneuver through that. I think for early on EMDR therapists, it can be challenging around the dissociation, but dissociation's incredibly common in trauma work. But you have to be able to address that. Some people argue that complex trauma is difficult to be able to release. I don't know if that's completely true. I think if it's of course easier when it's a single targeted memory. Right. Right. Just know that there aren't as many complexities associated with it. So, you know, in a session or two can clear. What we notice in complex PTSD or complex trauma is that the threads go in multiple places and finding that thread may not always be easy. And so what I've been able to do is that I know that the client's mind actually already has the access to it. They just might not know that it's there already. So I lend to speaking to the client's kind of natural subconscious state, I suppose. Like I'll ask them and really tap into their intuitive wisdom about where that memory goes back to. So that's the really the attachment focused component where most people coming in to see me have some attachment related trauma, something from their childhood that has been pervasive or was incredibly traumatic that is now showing up in their present life. Mm -hmm. It doesn't show up the same way as it did when the event happened. I guess the trauma itself has learned to cope. It's learned to defend itself. It's learned to find ways to protect itself. And so brains are really smart. They work and do everything they can to keep you safe. And sometimes that's, I don't want to get close to people because it hurts me because the closest people in my life have hurt me. For example, like that may be a narrative that they play out. So of course we have to go back to who hurt them. And sometimes, oftentimes it's someone close to them in a Inadvertently or intentionally, it doesn't matter. It's that they were hurt or injured. And so we have to go back. So it's addressing historical trauma. It's addressing recent trauma. It's compound trauma or complex trauma. I mean, I think it's for anyone who's experienced trauma. Personally, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense. And it's not the long term thing. Like, I've been in talk therapy, CBD, not CBD, C- <laughs> C- CBT. <laughs> yeah. I did the same thing like two days ago. <laughs> CBT therapy for three years now, but I was only doing EMDR therapy for maybe a month, two months, mm-hmm. maybe six mm-hmm. to eight sessions. I can't remember. Yeah, so it's not long term, right? Because once you've processed mm-hmm. the trauma, you're essentially done. 
I think that's more or less true. And that's something I really love that I can say to clients because people generally will ask you, and it's part of my consent too, but they'll ask, how long am I going to have to be in therapy for? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I get this question all the time. One of the disclaimers is therapy can feel worse before it feels better. It's Mm -hmm. nonlinear. And so it can ebb and flow in your progress, which is still true for EMDR therapy. However, I can say to them, if you're coming in to see me for this particular trauma, once we clear it and it's reprocessed and it's cleared from your mind and your experience and you feel like it's in a neutral state, you're done with that trauma. And they're like, what? What do you mean I'm done? And you know, it's (laughs) hard because they've lived with it their whole life. Mm Mm-hmm. Some people are very attached to their trauma. It's their identity. And so that's another disclaimer too that I often tell clients, like it's going to feel different. It might even feel not that great because you will likely be reinventing this part of yourself in a different way. And then sometimes I don't end right there. I actually continue for a few more sessions to do the integration. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that component is equally as important as addressing the trauma is integrating their new reality or new lived experience into who they choose to become. So the transition phase and the identity component, that is also where the talk therapy comes in, I think, actually. It can be quick. Yeah. And okay, so I remember my therapist saying something to me and I'm curious your take on it. So she, like I mentioned, would ask how traumatizing or how triggering does this feel to you? And I came in, it was a nine of 10. It was really high. But she was like, towards the end of our sessions, hopefully we can get it down to one, two, three. She was like, it most likely won't get down to a zero because it is trauma and it's going to change you for the rest of your life. And um, mine was sexual and mental abuse. Mm. And she was like, it's not like you're never going to be angry about this ever again. Mm. She was like, I would actually be worried if this didn't anger you because it was an injustice. Like Mm -hmm. it was violence against Mm -hmm. you. And so It's not like this is just never, ever going to affect you. You may still have something down the road that triggers you, but this is helping like process all of it so that it's not triggering on a daily basis. So yeah, what's your take on that? Personally, the way that I do it, I do try to take clients down to at least a zero or one. Mm -hmm. And a zero and one doesn't mean that it doesn't make them angry anymore. Right. But what I notice is that the anger transforms into something else. The anger that was maybe initially felt like anger towards the perpetrator or towards themselves or anger towards the world becomes channeled into anger towards fighting injustice. Yeah. Or it's actually a transformative experience. And so some of the integration work that I do is, okay, when you tap into the channeling of the anger and this kind of new way that it looks or how it feels for you, is that a disturbance or is that something else? Because mm-hmm. the one to 10 is a subjective unit of disturbance. We call it a SUD. So the question to the client is, is that a disturbance? Does mm-hmm. it disturb you? Or is it maybe a different word? Because what I notice is that it shifts and changes and it becomes kind of its own thing. And sometimes it might feel like empowerment or feeling power or feeling, you know, it starts yeah. to look a little bit different. So I try to help clients discern that if they don't move from a three, it's not like, you know, a terrible thing, right? Yeah. Because it's huge. It's like, that's a six point shift of I can't get out of bed because I'm mm-hmm. so debilitated to I blah blah I cuss out about the person who is my perpetrator and I can get up and I can feel good about myself. 
myself, right? That's an absolute win. But I would check it out. I would say like, what's keeping it at a three? I would do a body scan, see if anything's trapped in Mm -hmm. the body that we didn't catch or we didn't notice. But if it's good, they're standing kind of strong there. They feel good about where they're at. They feel like they're ready to move on. And we did all those pieces. I'll keep it there. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, you specialize in attachment-focused EMDR and intergenerational EMDR. Do you want to talk about that and unpack what that specifically means? Mm -hmm. So, and when therapists get EMDR training, they usually get a standard protocol EMDR training. So you're really taught how to do target memories or target experiences and go in and address that. And sometimes that is family-related, like parent related. Sometimes it's not. You're not necessarily coming from the lens of a parental experience or trauma. Attachment-focused EMDR really is looking at the attachment. When the trauma occurs or even, and we can even start with when client first comes in and they're talking about a sleep disturbance which seems slightly benign, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe not severe insomnia, but they've noticed, I have a hard time sleeping. It's this time of the day. It's always this time of the year, maybe something like that. I may not always go parental, but I might start to connect the thread or going back into history. And of course, we're simultaneously addressing current symptoms, something that may have happened. You know, I'm not ignoring the present moment, but I'm also continuously coming from the lens of what's the root problem? What else is going on? So I've noticed, and it's come up, particularly because I specialize in intergenerational and generational trauma, we know that it is the family and the family history and the relationship component is very much part of their identity and some of the struggles that they're dealing with. I do target memories and associate it with parental units. And I don't necessarily say to the client, do you remember a moment with your parent? I'm not even that directive, but I'll say the guiding question will be quite vague because like I said, their minds are able to access it. And if they don't access it with the first trace back memory, at some point it gets there and I trust it there. So I'll ask them, something might be going on with them maybe in their current relationship. And there's a moment in that EMDR or in the bilateral where I'll say, okay, go ahead and trace back as far as you can go without censoring it. Where do you land? Often Mm -hmm. they land with an attachment figure or a sibling or somebody in their unit or an uncle that maybe played parent or engaged in abuse or, you know, something. And they will land where they need to land. Sometimes they, and it oftentimes around like between the ages of four and eight is really common. So we target that memory. It may not reprocess that one completely because again, I work with a lot of complex trauma, complex PTSD clients, but Mm -hmm. it often pulls at a pretty thick thread. So something releases for them and then they either are able to reveal more of what needs to get addressed in the EMDR therapy or it addresses that particular experience, really coming from attachment model. The intergenerational piece is interesting. There's very few practitioners in the world who are doing intergenerational EMDR. Yeah, because what this is, is you're going one step further. So you do the attachment component. Oftentimes what comes up is the parent's trauma. My mom cried every day when I was little. She was incredibly depressed. She couldn't take care Mm. of me. I felt like I had to fend for myself. And so I lived this life that I don't trust anybody because I feel like I can't count on anyone. You can see how that happens. So mom, something's going on with mom. Mm-hmm. You have to sort out what's happening there. There's a technique in intergenerational EMDR created by Mark Brain. It is about how to access 
mom's trauma. And so, so we do something where we ultimately sit in the room as if you're doing empty chair technique, but a little bit, but through here, but it's not empty chair, mom sitting in the chair. And I tap into mom's history, trauma history. And oftentimes the client has some sense about what happened to mom, whether it was their childhood or not. And the interesting thing is you think, what if you don't know? You don't know all of your parents' history or your grandparents' history. You don't know what's happened. And you've come to see that the facts of the details are not that relevant. It's how it shows up for you because that's real for you. Right. Because that is their lived experience. That is what they're holding on to. And for, you know, I work with a lot of folks of color, including immigrants, people who have are refugees from their home of origin. Mm-hmm. So addressing trauma that has to do with warfare, poverty, slavery has been some of the most profound experiences for clients is to go into that lineage of their ancestral history. Yeah, that is such important work. All right. So let's talk about post EMDR session, because again, I'm going to reference my own experiences. Remember the first, maybe first two sessions, I came home and like, I remember driving home. I couldn't even get the words out to sing to the songs I had playing. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't form the words or the thoughts to have a conversation with anyone. When I got home, I climbed right into bed. I think it was like four o'clock and I stayed there until I went to sleep because it drained me. And Mm -hmm. I think my parents were really worried at first because they were like, is this doing more harm than helping because Mm -hmm. you seem to come home and like it's just a lot and Mm -hmm. I like that you mentioned like it can get worse before it gets better because it's unpacking a lot of trauma and processing that so of course it's going to be heavy and before you start feeling that relief so Mm -hmm. I want to talk about that what would you recommend clients do to take care of themselves and cope afterwards Mm-hmm. This is so important. And you know, I have a plan with clients after every session. And some of them, depending on what they need, is I, I ask clients to have a designated journal for their EMDR therapy because things are going to arise during the week, sometimes going to be in their dreams. It also functions as a dream journal, but more so about anything that's coming up, things they realize or reflect about. So having the journal, really wanting them to externalize what's coming up in their mind onto paper, and they can record it or whatever works for them. It also helps me in the next session to see what's come up. I talk about nourishing your body. Again, nourishment can look very different. It can be as simple as sleeping. You know, it can be as simple as increasing your water intake. But what I remind clients about is this self-care between sessions is integration time. I use this word integration because it is reflective of what's happening. Your body is exhausted because it is integrating. It's working mm-hmm. to try to move what's just happened through your mind and body, you know, and it can be quite grueling sometimes. So that self-care is whatever they need to help them move through and move that integration. I do this visual with them where I have them imagine that whatever work we did, that it's continuing to flow through their body. Mm -hmm. So if they were to imagine like the realizations flowing through, the feelings and thoughts and physical sensations flowing through, asking themselves during the week, okay, what do I need to help me have this continue to flow through? And that's been really helpful for clients because they themselves kind of know what they need. Like, I'm really tired. I just really want to sleep. I want to be with people or I want to be alone. I asked them to tap into the resource team and their comp place during the week. Mm-hmm. 
So before bed, tapping into your calm place, identifying a member of your resource team in your mind in that moment that could be supportive to you as you're going into sleep or as you're sitting in meditation, whatever their practice is, we can create a plan around that. And they continue to work on self-soothing, at least at this point, before we start EMDR, I also have given clients, we've developed a number of tools around self-soothing and grounding. They will have things like that to be able to use during the week. So I really, you know, resource them up. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. I remember I did have like nightmares Mm -hmm. after my sessions and I mentioned that to her and she had me do this practice where I would physically write in my journal different affirmations like I am safe. I am no longer in this relationship. He can't hurt me. I'm taking my power back. Mm -hmm. All these things. And then like that self-soothing of kind of giving myself a little hug or putting my hand on my heart and saying Mm -hmm. those to myself right before I go to sleep Mm -hmm. so that my subconscious doesn't go to that place. And it actually, it helped. And it kind of blew my Mm -hmm. mind that it did help. Mm -hmm. And even now, if I have a trigger, whatever it may be, come up, I make sure that night to do that practice so that it doesn't carry through and I have a nightmare that I'm still with him or he's hurting me and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Oh yeah, that's perfect. You know, really catering that to what it is that you need in that moment. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about triggers or re-traumatization. What does that look like and, and how can someone cope with these things coming up? How I describe triggers are you'll know that it's a trigger because you'll feel some type of way about it. Meaning, and it can even look like judgment. Sometimes it's quite obvious. Other times it's like, I just don't like that person. I don't like it here, right? It could, Mm -hmm. can be that subtle or it could be an instant sense of fear, anger, emotional volatility. It can cause anxiety, avoidance, tearfulness, right? Those are kind of the re-traumatization looks like a symptomology of the trauma. And it may not be as strong at the time of the trauma occurring, but it has flavors of it. It has the experience of it. And you'll know because you're, you'll begin to feel kind of an escalated state, whether that's in your body, whether it's in your thoughts, whether it's in your emotions. So you'll begin to get activated. And one of the ways to cope with that is I think grounding is so important. Helping clients and individuals develop ways of healthy coping. People use substances, well, because they like to sometimes, <laughs> but also most of the time it's self-medicating. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a way to, my gosh, it's too much. Let me dumb down. Let mm-hmm. me take some of that overstimulation down. So you take yeah. depressants, you're numbed out. So then you take stimulants. You want to disappear from the world. So you do, you know, hallucinogens, right? So mm-hmm. you can see how they coincide actually very closely with trauma or experiences or suffering. I think one of the things around healthy coping that's really important is also, we didn't talk about addiction much, but I've had clients who struggle with addiction. And one of the ways is to talk about the possible flare up between sessions that could maybe want them to use in order to cope. And so the healthy coping components are really important. And I don't minimize or I don't shame the substance use because again, it's had a function in their life, but we can also probably acknowledge that it's unhealthy 
Mm-hmm. So in order to have that decrease, we have to up the healthy coping and we begin to develop the serotonin, dopamine, endorphin levels, things that feel good, that are healthy so that they are then removed from the things that may be unhealthy to try to deal or cope. And it's really hard to give a specific answer to this because like I said, everybody's a little bit different. Right. When you think about dopamine, for example, all of these quote unquote happy hormones have certain things that support the happy hormone. So what I can say is that, for example, with dopamine, dopamine really is a hormone that is around completing tasks, completing small wins, you know, kind of that like feel good, I did something or even eating a good meal. Serotonin really taps into like spending time in nature, practicing meditation, sun exposure, exercise. So actually these different happy hormones you can target by building in some of these healthy coping. Endorphins are often associated with laughter, volunteering or giving back, being active. And then oxycodone or oxycontin is around giving a compliment, physical affection, physical touch. So if we're breaking down, you know, how to build in healthy, happy, connective coping that is an offsetting some of these trauma. And even with not very severe trauma, these kinds of activities can actually release some of those triggers in itself. You know, when it's not like the big T, you can actually stimulate some of these hormones through these experiences and then over time can actually release the anger. That's why like if someone's really angry, for example, and they're they're having a hard time managing that and someone that they love gives them like a really tight hug and they can at times help them release, even when you see it in children, children that are feeling emotionally volatile, like really just holding them, hugging them and giving them that can actually help release Oxycontin and then they're able to actually balance out that emotional state. So there's that science piece, but mm-hmm. also there's a reason why we do these things, not just because, right? Yeah, thank you for sharing that. What advice would you give to everyone trying to cope with the current state of the world with the pandemic, you know, racial injustice, election year, et cetera. What advice would you would you give them? A couple of things I would say is find the places and people in your life that bring you joy. Notice the little things in front of you that are tangible and changeable. Get up in the morning and and get ready. Put yourself first. That might mean getting your hair done. You know, that Mm -hmm. might mean putting on makeup, even if you're not going to see anyone. Doing that little bit that's just going to give you that little boost, you know, and I think those things matter. Building a practice, quote unquote practice, whatever that means, doesn't need to mean meditation. That could be like whatever exercise, anything. Building a practice that creates space between you and your daily life, between meetings you do, you stretch or Mm -hmm. some people will do cook food or work on their garden, but between meetings, having a practice that creates that space between daily life. I think rituals of ending certain parts of your day because we're all inside, can't get away, know, finding the things that give you meaning right now and noticing and leaning into the things that give you meaning and connection. I love that. All right. So to wrap up, what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? And further, what would you say to someone struggling? First and foremost, you're not alone and it can get better. Yeah. First and foremost, that piece. Secondly, you know, I hope that from learning about EMDR that listeners will be able to have access to something that maybe they've never thought about before. Yeah. So hope they learned a thing or two that might help them in some way. And I'd be 
more than happy just having that be a takeaway. Me too. So if people want to reach out, connect with you, work with you, where can they find you? So there's a couple ways. Probably the easiest is on my wellness Instagram or my wellness IG, wellness with Kini. One word, my IG is wellness with Kini. And I also have a website. Since my name's kind of unique, it's worked out, but it's <laughs> www.kinichang.com, www.kinichang.com. So you can also reach me via email. So a lot of times when folks reach me for referrals or things like that, it's MFT at gmail.com. Awesome. So I have all of those in the show notes below for anyone that is interested in reaching out. So I just want to ask you, do you have a song that deeply resonates with you and your story? Yeah. So the song I actually picked is Scars to Your Beautiful by Alessia Cara. Mm -hmm. And this song I chose because in 2016, one of my teens I was working with played this song for me. It's a youth who, 16-year-old, went to school at Casamont High School in the deep east of Oakland. She said to me, thank you for seeing me when I couldn't see the beauty in myself. Mm, it's beautiful. I just got chills. Yeah. So when I have hard days at work or just sometimes feel like the burden feels very heavy, I listen to the song and it reminds me of that moment. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for sharing all of your wisdom with us today and letting me pick your brain about this topic. I really appreciate your time and your words. You're welcome. All right. That's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.